Okay, guys, um, this, as I mentioned in my post, is near and dear to my heart, so much so that uh, I, I have rethemed our Thursday work to be, you know, not just about training, but, but therapeutic and strategic training. That's, that's what I would much prefer doing myself. I, I know all kinds of work has a place and is necessary. Uh, a couple doors down from my building on Main Street in Evansville, Indiana, is a friend of mine who does a, a high-intensity functional fitness class all day long. Love it. Glad he's here. We're going to be doing that through our Diet Doc Fit Lab streaming stuff eventually. But that's that's not what I that's not the best use of my skills. And so I really love to dive deep into not just the functional anatomy but showing how that's how we actually get the best results we want in the first place. So um, let, let me talk a little bit about what functional anatomy even is. You know, anatomy is anatomy. You're looking at a, a picture in a book or you look at, you know, muscles, bones, tendons, things like that. Here's your, your heart, your subclavian artery, your, your subscapular nerve, this, that. But from a functional anatomy perspective for physical medicine and, and you know, anybody in, in athletic training at any level, you know, it's first understanding the anatomy of the, the skeleton, the muscle, uh, muscle inserts and originates on bones in certain ways to move in certain directions. And so there are all kinds of joint uh, things to understand. We're not going to get this deep into, you know, innervation and blood supply, but that's you know, I, I hope you're aware of those kind of things. Like if you said, Hey man, my, you know, there's something wrong with my bicep. That's, that's weak for some reason. You could say, well, that's, you know, innervated by the musculocutaneous nerve, which is part of the C5 brachial plexus branch and, you know, blah, 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 follow it right up the chain. But um, you know, that's not what we're here today. So, you know, to, to discuss, so let me move on with that, but we are going to talk a little bit about connective tissue from a standpoint of health. So things like, you know, the, the discs between vertebrae and ligaments and things like that. So all things to understand that functional anatomy has its place very uniquely in just physical medicine and movement. But specifically for people who are looking to do something about it, I'm, I'm going to train, I'm going to try and increase my strength. I'm going to try and, you know, throw a baseball faster. I'm going to, I'm going to try and jump higher. Uh, you know, I want the biggest quads and pecs, you know, on a stage, whatever our goal is, we have to start with the understanding that there's, there's a lot of stability that takes place in our body. And yet we're going to superimpose movement on top of that stability. And from just a, a kinesiology standpoint and a biomechanic standpoint, you know, there, there is a, a lot to learn here. And I hope this makes it more interesting for you. So maybe you'll look up some things in the future or, or see these things in a different light. But, you know, besides the goal, the ultimate goal of strength and hypertrophy and performance, I actually should have put performance in there, like number six, um, you know, safety has to be there because if we're broken, nothing else matters when you're, when you're on the sidelines and you can't train for six months. And so we really have to be able to respect those things. So let's look at the skeleton first. And, and I selected this image because it, it, it does kind of superimpose the body on top where you can see things. But when I, when I say, hey, we're going to talk about low back health and strength, you, you need, as I said in my post, to look at everything that happens from the feet up. And so when you look at this as an entire chain, 
Uh, obviously, you know, the three or, or maybe four segments of the spine, if you count the sacrum and then the lumbar spine, the thoracic spine, the cervical spine, you know, that, that is a place where we get a lot of wear and tear and we can strain our backs. We can, we can create other pathologies uh, that, that I'll mention, but it, it doesn't operate in a vacuum. You know, it's sitting there anchored, you know, between two hemispheres of your pelvis with the SI joints and even the pubic symphysis on the front side. And then as I'll show you in a couple slides, you know, how, how the muscles even connect from the femurs up, you know, through the pelvis into the spine and, and really tiny muscles that even connect each vertebrae to an individual rib. I mean, there are so many layers of, of muscle there. And then our abdominal wall, you know, all kinds of things to consider just for spinal stability, spinal health, strength. Um, I'm so glad this was on Google Images because if, if you've ever been in an allied health or medical school type type course, um, you know, Frank Netter, uh, th this is something that I don't even know if, if people still use this kind of a textbook, but in the early 1900s, a medical doctor named Frank Netter literally drew every bit of human anatomy down to even the finest little muscles of the eye and so forth. He was, he was just one of these guys who loved anatomy. So if, if you want to be impressive, you know, get, get a copy of Frank Netter's anatomy book, you know, there, there are updated versions, but instead of just a, a picture of cadavers or, or 3d images that are, are created uh, with, with CGI and so forth, yeah, it's, it's, it's just super impressive to see this kind of artwork and so forth. But what I wanted to show you here, the, the spine, uh, w whenever people talk about the spine, you hear kind of off the street things like, oh, I, I slipped a disc or I pinched a nerve. And a lot of those things are, are kind of funny because it just, you know, things don't generally happen that way. So I wanted to go through some of the anatomy so, so you're aware of some of those intricate spinal motions before we get into to some of the movement. So, so first, that very top left picture of a, a top-down view of a vertebrae. So you have that vertebral body, that, that wedge-shaped thing, but then you see that hole in the middle. That's where the spinal cord goes through. But then if you skip down to the bottom right view of the actual spine, lumbar spine in sequence, you see the hole from the side. So these, these you know, back up to the top left, the, these lateral protrusions, the transverse processes, they kind of stack on top of each other. So if you imagine, you know, a vertebrae kind of like this and they're stacked on top of each other, you know, the, the transverse processes on the side, as the spinal cord is going through, you know, top to bottom, north to south, the, um, you know, there are, are openings on the side in between each vertebrae, and that's where these nerve roots come out. So when somebody has a literal nerve injury, um, and, and I'm, I'm specifically saying nerve injury, meaning, meaning there's something pinching, protruding, scraping a, a disc that's bulging or herniated against it, you know, that's what we're describing. But here's a couple of stats I want you to keep in mind. 60% of all adults have multiple disc bulges and herniations that are completely asymptomatic because that disc, now if you look at the very top right, uh, that, that, the, the material that is between each vertebrae 
it's not a disc that you can literally say, oh, here, I'm just going to insert this in or take it out or it slips. It's layer and layer and layer and layer and layer of ligamentous material, just like a, a, a ligament in your ankle. And it, it, it connects the bones, the vertebrae. So it, nothing slips, nothing moves whatsoever. These things are glued together. I, as I mentioned in my post, I have prosected and dissected probably half a dozen cadavers through school. And, and I, I, I can tell you, your spine does not move like that, these vertebrae. It would take you an hour and your heart rate would be 180 and you would be sweating with a hammer and a chisel just trying to get these vertebrae apart. So it's not like things slip, move, that kind of thing. When you herniate a disc or a disc bulges, it's because there is a, a gelatinous fluid inside the nucleus of the disc. When we get older, that actually dehydrates. And so I probably have very, I, I, I'm at really low risk of herniating a disc right now because there's nothing to herniate. Um, but at the same time, you know, I did herniate one or actual multiple ones, but uh, the, the only one that gives me any symptoms whatsoever, I herniated as a late age teenager through uh, an injury, like a, a car accident, and then re-injured it and, and so forth and have had problems ever since. But um, the way a disc herniates is that ligament tears. And so the, they, the, the, the annulus or the disc that connects each vertebrae together they actually cross fibers. And the only way to describe this or the best way is you remember those little like finger trap toys you have as a kid where you put your finger in both sides and then you try and pull and, and you can't get it out. Like the, the, the more you pull it apart, like the tighter it gets. That interwoven crossing material, that's exactly what the annulus does or, or how it is functionally. So the best way, if you wanted to herniate a disc, is to rotate to one side because now half of that ligamentous material is completely slackened, but the other half is as tight as possible. So all I have to do now is in this position, lean over and pick up a laundry basket and boom, I'm done. You know, injury for the rest of my life, herniated disc. So we have to be incredibly careful. Yet at the same time, like I said, these things are, are, are super, super common. And the only time you'll ever even know you have one is if in the entire radius of that annulus, that disc, you happen to herniate it in a position where it, it hits one of those nerve roots. So the, the nerve root space may occupy maybe 20%, 15% of the entire possible position where a disc could herniate. So it has to herniate there for you to have an issue. Another stat for you is 80% of people who have any episodic back pain. So, and I mean, bad pain, like I can't breathe. I can't move. I can't even get up out of a chair. My back hurts so freaking bad. 80% of those times that person is hundred percent better in two weeks because a back strain straining the muscle can be 10 times more painful than hurting a disc. And, and after those two weeks, 80% of the people who are now feeling better, the 20% who are not, 80% of those 20% are better in another two weeks. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll explain it this way. In, in my own context, when I herniated my disc in my neck, you know, I felt it. I felt that hot burning pain. I felt it sear. I did, you know, it was awful. I had about a year of, of pain and trauma uh, where it was just kind of healing, uh, maybe not even a year, maybe a little bit less. 
And then I didn't have any problems for 10 years because it just kind of healed. But then because your body will start to lay down calcium to immobilize a joint, you know, I started getting bone spurring without that nucleus, it starts to degenerate. And so you get, you know, the, the prospect of, um, you know, arthritic changes, bone is starting to encroach upon bone a little bit. But I want to, I want to, I would just want to tell you all of that to let you know that a, you know, this is one of the reasons why we have to protect our spines. This, this is really serious stuff. Um, my mother, for example, at 70 years old, uh, her entire lumbar spine was so degenerated that she now has Harrington rods where her entire lumbar spine is just fixated to her sacrum and pelvis. So she has no mobility, just a steel cage from her, her rib cage to her thoracic spine or to her, her sacrum. That's not fun. You lose a lot of mobility. There's a lot of pain involved. So we have to protect ourselves. Uh, but at the same time, I want you to know that you really are, are, are focused first on muscle and movement and, and not catastrophizing so much that every time something is wrong that you think, oh, I, you know, I hear people throw around these words like herniated discs and all that. So, so let's go into this first layer of muscle over the spine, these longitudinal muscles. Uh, some of them really do, you know, start way down there at the sacral level around the SI joints and they're just anchored in there. They're, they're incredibly, you know, tough and strong and, and they extend across the entire range of our spine, but there are little, you know, offshoots that, that will connect to different ribs and so forth. So every time you move and, and you bend and you stretch, you know, there are different muscles in, in some of them very small that control that particular range of motion. So I'm going to venture to say everybody here has had back pain at some point and muscle strains and so forth. Some of the worst you can ever feel is just like a tiny muscle between ribs. Like, oh my gosh, I can't breathe. Every time I sneeze, I feel like I'm going to die. And I, I can't even, you know, get in and out of the car. It hurts so bad. And, and, People can palpate. You can go to massage therapy, physical therapy, and nothing hurts except like one tiny little slip of muscle. And it's because that was the particular muscle fiber group that was truly strained. I mean, a muscle strain is a mechanical strain. It's where the muscle tissue got so overstretched that it's now injured, possibly frayed, possibly some micro tearing. Uh, and, and, you know, and sometimes you can tear a muscle completely as in a complete avulsion, but that would be rare in the spine because there, there are so many other supporting structures. So, so really do just, just as one quick graphic, you know, uh, imagine these longitudinal muscles that, that run the entire length of the spine, because I'm going to talk about segmental mobility and strength in, in a little bit. It's something that's almost counterintuitive to what we talk about with, with strengthening. So then the muscles on top that you generally see. Now you're looking at your lats, you're looking at your traps. Um, you, you see that on the right, the, the little band that goes kind of from the spine across to the rib cage there. Uh, the quad, you know, we, we have, you know, so, some of those, as I mentioned, are the smaller muscles that really do a lot. I mean, posturally, you know, they're not that important. Most of the time you're lifting, you're, you're supporting your back properly, you're using your legs and all that, so they're not overstrained but you do something at the wrong angle with the wrong load and you put one small muscle group under a load that it just can't bear. And, and you're going to have a big time injury. And those are some of those muscles, uh, you know, that, that are often the, the worst strain. It's very difficult. You know, those people who've been lifting weights and in, in, in 
athletics for a long time. I mean, how often do you really strain a pec? How often do you strain a lat? How often do you strain a quad? You know, hardly ever because those muscles are huge multi-joint muscles that are strong. You know, they're there for that kind of work. It's always the, the little ones underneath in weird places that, uh, that, that get beat up. So I started talking yesterday in our, in our group about the importance of the pelvic musculature, and we forget about these things. So if you look, I, I, I kind of chopped these off because they were too small to read anyway. I don't know if you can see my cursor, but if you look at the, the spine of the iliac crest, it's the very top of the pelvis, and you see on the inside, there's a muscle that kind of coats the inside, and then it comes down to the femur, you know, over the trochanter. Um, you know, th those th those muscles are sometimes, along with the psoas, everybody loves to talk about the psoas right now. So this great big one here that kind of runs alongside the spine, you can see it connecting to, you know, L4, L4, 3, 2, 1 up there. Then it comes down through the pelvic girdle, wraps around the trochanter, you know, that's the psoas. There are, are obturator muscles, things like that, that connect from even the ischial tuberosities of the pelvis over to the trochanter. On the backside, I'm, I'm thinking I forgot to even put one up on, on the glute side. Let me, let me see if I did. No, oh, shoot, I did. Um, so I, I forgot to have one that, that shows like the piriformis and the glutes. But if you can imagine that the gluteus maximus, you know, across the bottom, really huge. And then Maybe it's up in one of these here. Yeah, I don't have it there either. Sorry, guys. But then the gluteus minimus and medius kind of on top of that, and then the piriformis underneath on the backside. All of these anchoring glute, hip, pelvic, stabilizing muscles, if those things are not strong, and I'm going to mention flexibility in a little bit, then your spine is at a huge deficit. Your, your spine cannot just float in space with a very weak foundation in the pelvis. And, and you expect to have the kind of safety and strength that, that you require for spinal stability and, and even, even performance. So you, you guys have heard probably for 20 years, you know, it's almost become a joke talking about your core, right? Got to strengthen my core. You know, we make all those jokes and Functional exercise is really great for your core when you're doing things like mountain climbers and burpees and things like that. Uh, even crab walks and things like that where in a closed kinetic chain way, you're using your hands and feet on the ground and doing those kind of things because you're using some of those rotational and multi-plane motions to strengthen and move muscles in ways that we just don't do in straight linear exercise. But, but I, I want to I make sure that you understand I'm kind of breaking apart our emphases on just the, the low back itself and the musculature around the low back, especially those, those deeper internal layers of the low back muscle that will help with segmental stability. But then understand what we can't see from the back, everything that's happening on the inside. Like as a physical therapist, I, I mentioned if I wanted to actually palpate or massage or do some kind of positional re release on the psoas. I've got to have you laying on your back with your legs up and relaxed. So your abdominal wall is totally relaxed. And now I'm digging through your abs and your organs, like, like superficially pushing those things out of the way just to get to that because you can't get to it from the back. It's all on the front side of the spine. Some of these things you could never get to, you know, deep inside the pelvic girdle. But, but they, they have a huge role to play. 
And then, of course, this this is something I'm gonna I'm gonna do. Um, I, I think after I finish this series, I'm gonna do one just on the abdominal wall, because the four parts of the abs we always think of our rectus abdominis, like what we can see when we're lean enough, right? You got those six pack abs, but it's not just about strengthening those. Your transverse abdominis wraps around from the side, so the muscle fibers of the of the rectus abdominis, you know, when you're doing crunches or hanging leg raises, you're, you're contracting that muscle tissue this way. The transverse abdominis kind of holds you together the exact opposite way. Then you have your, your internal and external obliques that again, kind of crisscross. So you're, you know, it, it, it does, you know, different motions. Like if I'm swinging a golf club and the initial part of my swing is swinging down, then, you know, the external obliques on one side of my rib cage and internal on the other side are, are kind of cinching for that motion. And I hope it's cliche enough that everybody knows that a strong abdominal wall is important for spinal health, but it has to be strong from every single angle. And one of the most important things you can learn about your abdominal strength and functionality is that all four of these muscle groups are actually connected on the same fascial sheath. So it's not like, okay, I train my quads this way, or let's say my triceps, as I'm showing you, and my, my biceps this way, and I train my, you know, my upper abs this way and my lower abs this way. And this, like your abs all contract together. So every single abdominal exercise you do, you're going to emphasize one part over another. But this is why it's an, an important thing, especially for your trunk, for your core, to work in different planes with different angles in different movement patterns, because that's how we are so multi-directional every which way we can move. If we're in a gym and we do everything in one plane, you know, everything's in the, in the frontal plane, we're doing, you know, crunches this way, hanging leg raises this way. And we never do And maybe even we think rotational, you know, okay, we do that that way. But if you don't change the angle and the emphasis of force, you're, you're still leaving yourself open for injury. So this is where it, it's been really fun to watch the field of exercise science in its application. I, like I see people, like even my clients will send me video clips of them doing an exercise. And I'm, I'm like, holy cow, that's amazing. Like who even thought of that? Like what a great exercise. Um, it, there's so much creativity out there now. But let's, let's go back to the two things that are most important, not just for back health, but to literally get what we want from that strong, healthy spine, which is to be able to squat 800 pounds or deadlift 1200 pounds or throw a football 60 yards or flip through the air and do a, you know, quadruple Lutz or whatever you do on ice skates. Um, like, like that's, that's what we want. And there still has to be this, this combination of some parts of our body and spine are incredibly stable, creating that foundation for healthy, safe, strong, precise movement. So uh, let, let's talk first about the feet. Uh, did you know that when you use your feet, like it used to be in old school weightlifting, people would say something like, hey, if you're doing a squat or even a hack squat or a leg press, like push through your heels. You, you actually wanna almost be able to like lift your toes up and everything's going through your heels because we want to create the ground force reaction line that the, the physics line of force kind of back away from your knees. And that's, that was the whole thought process is let's get it back to the posterior side of the knee 
So we're not hurting, you know, the, the infrapatella, suprapatella, tendon, that kind of thing. But what we missed with that is the fact that as precursors to homeo sapiens, before we wore fancy shoes everywhere we went, our feet were actually useful and used to grip. So an exercise you can do to improve even spine strength and hamstring strength is increase the strength of your foot grip and, and functionally practice that. So when I squat now, and I learned this probably 20 years ago in a physical therapy course, I actually grip the floor with my feet. Like I want to feel my feet just as if they were hands, like gripping the floor. So I'm, I, the weight is obviously through my heels, but I'm not just passive with my feet. I'm not just letting them rock and I'm not, I'm not relaxing them. I'm gripping because that neurologically cues the right sequence of motor recruitment that you want, that's very favorable. So when you grip with your feet, your vastus medialis on the inside of your knee contracts harder, EMG studies, your adductors contract harder, then your glutes contract harder. All of that creates the, 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 the knee, the hip, and then the pelvic and spinal stability that you want. Because in, in like a running motion, if, if, if you can neurologically train your body to do that, because that's just your default, you, you, you consciously do that. So then unconsciously, your body has just learned that motor pattern. Then even just walking, just walking down the street, somebody who's done that, when their heel strikes, their foot automatically grips a little tighter, which, which, which internally rotates the knee a little bit more. So the vastus medialis kicks in. This can save knee wear and tear and pain. And I'm talking about eventual knee replacements and so forth, because now you're keeping your movement patterns in a more uniform symmetrical pattern. All of these things matter. Um, a few weeks ago, I mentioned I was doing some training for a local high school girls softball team. And one of their star athletes, like the best, best athlete in the school, uh, she just had zero glute strength. So, you know, a monster squatter at, at probably four feet, 10 catcher, you know, maybe a, a buck 20, you know, as far as weight, she was squatting close to 200 pounds and she would go down with great form. And then her knees would just almost touch her. You know, she would go down a certain amount and then her knees would just cave in and cave in and cave in. And one of the coaches called me and said, you know, Hey, what's like, what's wrong with her? We were trying to get her to not do that. And I said, well, her glutes just aren't firing. I mean, she obviously has strong glutes because she can squat this much, but her nervous system is just not recruiting them. So we had to back off the weight, start from the feet up, start with foot position and get her to sit down in that squat and feel her glutes contract. So it doesn't matter how strong a muscle is if we're not neurologically recruiting it properly. So you know, a lot of things to consider, you know, especially if you have some knee pain or hip pain or this or that, or, or you look in the, you know, a video of you from the side trying to do a deadlift or something, and you just can't get that form. Sometimes there, there are some weaknesses because you haven't been recruiting a certain muscle or muscle group. Sometimes it's just really engaging that through practice and retraining your nervous system that way. But, but all, you know, this, this literally goes up the entire kinetic chain, you know, even into your, your scapula and your shoulders. And I'm, I'm going to mention them real briefly, probably won't spend a lot of time here, but remember 
you know, our connection to the ground is where support begins, right? So that's, that's why even contracting the muscles in the bottom of your feet matter, because that helps now to ground a certain base of stability. And then as I taught you guys yesterday in the squat rack down in my studio, whether I'm doing a stiff-legged deadlift, a deadlift, you know, conventional sumo, a squat, even a leg press or hack squat, even a, even a, a lunge, if I'm not actively contracting the glutes from the very beginning point I can at the bottom of the motion when they're stretched, if I'm not consciously starting that contraction and increasing it to the point of maximum volitional contraction at the top of the movement, I'm missing a huge opportunity to strengthen that entire kinetic chain top to bottom and reinforce those neurological movement patterns because everything is connected through soft tissue all the way until you hit the ground. And, and think of the things, you know, you guys who are really experienced weightlifters, what have been some inventions that have been extremely helpful? You know, first of all, people like Arnold Schwarzenegger started lifting in bare feet. Like, you know, if I don't have all this high cushion, you know, tennis shoe stuff, I, I'm not absorbing and reducing that ground reaction force. I can push harder against the ground you can increase your squat by 20 or 30 pounds just by not wearing a, a cushiony sole. Cause you know, like the, one of those laws of thermodynamics, everything that, you know, pushes against, I saw Andrew Hughes on here, an engineer, um, he knows this stuff, you know, you're, you're just, you're, you're pushing against and absorbing that. So you don't have the ground pushing back with that equal and opposite force. Um, but even things like at the ankle, if somebody has, you know, the original shoe, the Atomics or Atomics, I think it's Atomics, um, where it was kind of like a wrestling shoe, but high ankle where you could lace that thing up and really support the ankle, just because now you're not getting the splaying of the ankle bones, you know, 26 bones in the feet, and you're really tightening that up, that saves a lot of physics level energy that then translates up the spine into the kind of motion you're trying to create. So a lot of these things matter because stability is so crucial because at some points up the chain, you're getting less and less stability through that skeletal alignment in that pure muscle contraction. And, and at some level now the movement starts and all of that movement is contingent upon the stability below it. Um, I mentioned last, I think it was last Thursday, we talked about the shoulder blade and the scapula. And, you know, the scapula is a free floating bone. You know, there are 17 muscles that either originate or insert on the scapula. And yet it has no anchor point other than that soft tissue. So for upper body work, just to actively use the right muscles to set the shoulder blades and so forth. Like, you know, you see that in a bench press, somebody like setting their shoulder blades down in, in a squat the same way in a deadlift, because they want to enforce that stability the best way that we can, which for a free floating bone like the scapula is just that, that terminal muscular strength. So all of that now has to translate into the actual movement. And going back to the, the functionality of the spine, almost everything that we do for strength, like a squat, what's the first thing a personal trainer tells you? Keep your back straight contract those abs, make sure you keep that spinal neutral position. Even if you're in a leg extension, you're not even in a closed kinetic chain position or a lat pull down, like, hey, 
get your low back straight, you know, straighten up, tighten those abs, keep that position. You don't want your spine just to be all, you know, wobbly and unstable and then risking a, a strain or a worse injury. Uh, a hinge movement like a deadlift, those all keep the spine very stable and, and, and for a very important reason. Like there are times you don't want the spine to move. There are other times you want the spine to move. If you're swinging a baseball bat, you're swinging a tennis racket, you have to be strong in rotational movements. So we've got to train that way. But remember what happens when we start in introducing that segmental motion around the spine. Are those muscles super strong and, and durable? No, they're not. They're the super tiny little ones that can strain and tear and become very painful very easily. Is the, is the disc, the annulus between vertebrae, is that strong when we're rotating? Absolutely not. That's when it's its weakest and, and at risk of tearing. So when we're doing rotational movements, first of all, we need them. Like we have to strengthen in those planes, but you have to be careful and, and pay attention to the quality of your motion and, and make sure you're not going too far. You make sure your range of motion is actually safe. If you're using any kind of a load, you know, start out with the mindset that you're working with lower load in, in shorter spans of range of motion to get as strong as you can, then you can increase the load, meaning the tension of the exercise. And still, if you're going through that extreme range of motion, that's when you have to be more careful. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing kind of a PNF pattern for my, my abs, so I'll, I'll have a heavy band, um, you know, tied to a squat rack or something, and I'll hold on to this and I'll, I'll, I'll simulate like, like half of a golf swing, like the, the downswing. So, you know, a lot of resistance coming down in that chopping motion. I can get a very heavy band and, and do kind of half of that range of motion and feel safe. Like, okay, this is almost like doing a partial range squat. But if I want to go through that entire range of motion, I'm not going to let my form get loose and, and just you know, go right into super heavy, high range of motion type, type movements, or I'm going to be at a higher risk. But Another thing to think about that is often missed is that frontal plane segmental motion of the spine. So every time I tell somebody, hey, let's go do a hyperextension or let's go do a reverse hyperextension, everybody automatically goes down and it's just like a stiff-legged deadlift. You know, they keep that lumbar spine locked in and unmoving. And, and I would say that's great cognitive training. Like they, they know how to protect that spine. But when I say, okay, now I want you to actually bend your spine. I want you to kind of uncoil, you know, first of all, most people look at you like you have two heads. Like you, you want me to bend my spine? Like, isn't that going to injure me? Isn't that how you get hurt? Yes. Under extreme dangerous load. But at some point you need to strengthen those small muscles that control that segmental work. So if I'm doing a 500 pound squat, obviously I've trained to a point where those little muscles are strong enough to stabilize my spine. But have I ever taken them through a range of motion through full flexion and extension, intentionally strengthening them with that, that entire range of motion? Most people don't. So, so doing different types of low back work, like you know, I'll, I'll do hyper extensions where I, I, you know, you can almost mimic like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of this hyper extension machine, whether it's a 45 degree angle or a full horizontal, 
and I'm going to pretend like there's an electric fence under my abs and I can't touch that wire. So I have to, I have to bend across like a cobra. So now I'm fully flexing my lumbar spine and then uncoil. And, and that's very difficult to do because now you're using those really small muscles. If I just completely hinge down at my pelvis, now it's just all glutes and hamstrings doing it. And, and now I'm asking those lumbar muscles just to stabilize again. They don't have to move. They just have to stay locked into position. Again, that's fine. We need that strength too. But, but um, you know, consider even a reverse hyperextension. So now I'm holding on to a machine, stabilizing my rib cage, and now I'm moving my pelvis and lower body instead of the opposite, a normal hyperextension, my lower body and pelvis are secure and I'm moving my upper body and spine. When you change that position, just completely reverse it, the very, very low lumbar extensors in your spine around your SI joints, all of a sudden you're gonna feel like they've never even been worked before because they've just never had to go through that range of motion. And yet, you know, in, in different daily activities or different movement patterns, you're, you're asking those muscles to be just as strong as if they were stabilizing a 500 pound deadlift or squat. And yet you've never trained them in that way. So I'm, I'm super, super big on, on training your spine and, and all those muscles, you know, from your, your pelvis, your glutes, and even hamstrings, like with a glute ham raise all the way up to your neck with, with both segmental motion you know, purely locked in heavy weighted motion, like the hinge things we're talking about. And even some rotation, I, I almost don't want to mention this because I don't want anybody to get hurt. But I wonder if you have ever gotten yourself in a hyperextension position, and then done small rotations. Just like if I'm training my abs, it's not uncommon for me to do bicycling crunches, even with a hanging leg raise. To, to, you know, bring my hips up canted to one side to work my internal and external obliques. Like we'll do stuff like that for our abs all day. When's the last time you train those really small multifidus and rotator muscles around the spine? I'm, I'm venturing like never. And so that's something that can be, you know, very, very important, even in a small way. Like, like when you get in a quadruped position, hands and knees, and you're doing like the, the kind of bird dog exercises that a physical therapist would have you have, like, like just doing that makes those muscles at least oscillate and move a little bit in those, in those rotational positions in a, in a safe stabilizing way. But those of us who are doing a lot more in the gym, you know, these are some things we can do to make our, our bodies even, even safer and stronger. So, you know, going back to the, the, the segments of the body that are all, critically important. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to play a little, little, you know, cue the Bruce Springsteen glory days track for me for a moment. You know, in, in my fifties here, I'm not as strong as I was in my thirties. And sometimes it's, it's odd to not feel that strong. Like you, you almost take for granted. I, I saw um, Austin Kiergaard is on this call and I saw a video of him the other day uh, in the gym doing full depth, amazing form squats with 455 pounds, three reps, just, just great reps. And I'm like, man, that was one of my top strength sets in my thirties when I did 455 for three. And then I was able to get to 500 pounds for one. 
And now just putting 315 on my spine feels like I'm going to crumble like a, like a gingerbread house. Like, like how was my body even that strong 20 years ago? But it wasn't just because I was squatting. It was because I was doing all of the things I'm talking about. You know, I was doing, you know, reverse alternating lunges with hundred pound dumbbells. I was doing um, stiff legged deadlifts with 405. I was doing, you know, even sprinting. I, I was running uh, 60 second quarter mile sprints and, and six minute miles and, and think of all of, you know, what kind of force that takes through your whole kinetic chain. And, and it took that entire synergy of strengthening and, and mobility and so forth throughout my whole body to get to, you know, what was, you know, my, my top strength. So if, if I wanted to try and recapture that strength, it, it, would, it could be totally possible like injuries aside and so forth. If I said, you know what, I want to spend two years and try and get back up to a 500 pound squat. Could I do it? I'll tell you the wrong way to try would be just to start squatting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. The right way to do it would be to make sure I'm starting with, you know, all the way back down to what contacts the floor. What are my feet doing? What are my knees doing? Am I, can I actively feel my VMO and my knee contracting? Am I, am I recruiting my glutes? Are my glutes strong enough? You know, I, I can't squat 500 pounds anymore. I sure can't do stiff-legged deadlifts with 405. So I need to start stair-stepping all of that up, even something like scapular musculature. You know, it's, it's no coincidence that when I could squat 500 pounds, I could also do a standing push press with 225. There's no way my shoulders and traps could even hold 500 pounds on my back right now, I would have to strengthen up, you know, that entire part of my body. So, so for everybody moving forward, regardless what your goals are, it, it could be completely rehab oriented. Like I remember being with my mother when she woke up from her spinal fusion surgery. And, and my thought was, I like, this could be the end of her. Like, like, how do you even start to get somebody to get stronger and walk again when she's already frail and in her seventies, and now she has this to go through. Well, you do it one step at a time. You do it one rep at a time. You do it, you know, doing a sit to stand transfer, you know, for five reps and then 10 reps and then 20 reps and then a little bit deeper. And then, you know, with a little bit more weight, but, but we, we really need all of the, the synergy of the things I'm talking about, the, the, the complexity of the stability and the strengthening all the different planes of motion. So, uh, if we could, if we could kind of settle on this one slide here and, and go through the things you need, functional anatomy means functional. It means movement. It means, am I even aware of how my body can move in its most efficient, strongest, most stable way? And then to get to, to consider that global power, like that 500 pound squat, that 500 pound deadlift, you know, I, I, it's not just gross strength, that global strength is only there as a sum of all the intrinsic strength and motion. And, and I put flexibility in there because, you know, some of us have muscle imbalances, even just genetically, the way our, our bodies are, are, you know, just, just designed to where we, you know, may have super, super tight hip flexors or super tight hamstrings. And so to squat a certain way, is, is, is a risk. And so we need to either modify the movement or do some extra work. 
you guys, you guys probably remember decades ago when, when NFL football players started doing like ballerina type dancing or ballet dancing type things for flexibility. Now, of course, that's been replaced with yoga and, you know, better stretching and all that. But, you know, that can be an important part of, of shoring up some deficits. But, but just on that note alone, you know, the, the symmetry of strength and flexibility around every joint is so, so, so key. Um, you know, how many times do you hear people talk about who, who are, you know, MMA fighters, or as I said, NFL football players and powerlifters who say, man, ever since I started stretching, or now that I, you know, it used to be like foam rolling, and now it's yoga, like, wow, am I so much better, man, do I feel better? Because when we get super strong in certain movements or planes, you know, we are changing the orthopedic mechanics of those joints, and there's just going to be wear and tear, there's going to be increased damage to you know, meniscus, the cartilage between knees, even, even the hard cartilage, uh, you know, is, is going to be an issue. So all of that said, who has some questions about spine health, strength, stability, everything that has to do with, with these kinds of mechanics I was mentioning, I'm going to stop the share here. So I can get everybody else up on the screen. Um, any questions, everybody just fire away. Go ahead, Roseanne. I have a, a question. I have a, like, this is actually near and dear to my heart. So I have a couple of friends, well, one family member who've had their L5 injury, like they've had an injury. One has had surgery. One is waiting for surgery because of COVID. It's going to be like a year and a half. Uh, and the life, you know, they're, they're on pain management and it's, you know, I, I'm just, you know, to actually give my sister any recommendations on what to do while she's in this, in this waiting period, she's just started some physio, which is awesome. Hmm. You know, it, every single injury and surgery is so different that you never know, even the best practitioners an orthopedic surgeon or neurosurgeon talking to them you know, are often wrong. The, my, the, the first doctor who ever did a knee surgery on me said, we're, we're wrong 60% of the time. Like our best diagnoses were just wrong. And, and so some, some surgeries are done and didn't need to be done or they're done wrong or we're, we're treating something even non-surgically in ways that are just wrong. Can't tell you how many times I hear clients going in for like a cortisone injection into a certain tendon or muscle and it didn't work. And I said, well, why did they put it in that tendon? Like that's not even the one that's injured. Um, and so the, the, I, I will give you kind of a spectrum of things to think about. Mm -hmm. Number one, tissue healing takes a long time. And yet if something is still very, very painful, you have to respect that and keep looking like what could still be wrong? What, what, what are we not finding here? And, you know, I don't want to say doctors are very fond of doing exploratory surgeries to find out, but at least try, most of them will try different things, different modalities. Like we'll go to physical therapy. Let's work on this. Let's work on strengthening, stretching this, that. Um, it's very palliative, of course, to do something that's just like a cortisone injection for pain and inflammation. But sometimes that can just disrupt that loop. Like sometimes you just, the, the, the brain and the nervous system get stuck sometimes in pain feedback loops and there's nothing wrong anymore, but the brain is just firing those pain signals. You know, that's just a chemical and electric response that our body gets used to. So some of that can need to be addressed with different types of modalities or even pharmacologically. But I mean, being a, being more of an organic 
biological naturalist, I always look for the easiest things to fix first, which are just the, the biological tissue. You know, what's actually broken here? What's wrong? What's injured? What, what can we work on fixing? And, um, and then just understanding sometimes um, it, it is going to be unique to us. I, I'll, I'll stop with this, Roseanne, and just the fact that I was scheduled for neck surgery three years ago. And, and my neurosurgeon just called an audible at the last minute, like day before surgery. Joe, I just, I really think we should just wait uh, because there's so much, you know, we don't, we don't know if, you know, you really need an artificial disc or if we're just going to do a fusion, like it's still, you have so many options at your age. I just want to, if you can wait a little bit longer, technology is going to improve. And he went through my MRIs with me frame by frame by frame by frame showing, you know, here's how your disc has completely degenerated. And, and you had this massive bone spurring complex that your body has just laid down and encased that side of the joint for 30 years as a way to auto fuse it. So he said, like me even going in here and fusing it, like you're already 99% fused. So, you know, the pain you're feeling is because of the compression of those nerve roots and we can go in there and we can clean all that out and we can jack it up and cage it and all that. And I hope you feel better, but we know like 50% of patients don't because we're also doing surgical injury. Like we're going in there cutting stuff and creating scar tissue. So he's like, man, if you know, if you could just wait, I would feel much better if we get a couple years down the road. So I know tons and tons and tons of people who've had like an L5-S1 microdiscectomy, laminectomy. They walk out of surgery, never another pain, like just couldn't be better. Um, just like it never even happened. Other people come out of a surgery like that and they're worse and they're worse forever. So I, I, I tend to think that like my neurosurgeon, like being as conservative as possible, like to don't go in and start slicing and dicing and doing all these things mechanically until you absolutely have to. But even once you've done that, if there are still some problems, it's just a long process of weeding through things one at a time, always understanding Roseanne that the, you know, the, the, the most strengthening and stretching and stuff you can do, the better you're going to be. Well, one study I saw just in prepping for this, showed that just just doing physical therapy exercises not even modalities no no manual therapy no techniques of any sort just just giving the appropriate movement patterns for strengthening and stretching like like cured over 90 percent of people's back pain and these are people who already like they didn't just didn't go away on their own so there aren't that many people who end up with that intractable pain and yet just the action of blood flow and, and movement and, and, you know, the contract, relax, reciprocal inhibition of the nervous system, you know, can do a lot. So I, I kind of just gave you everything I know instead yeah, of being, being able to put my hands on her and say, hey, try this. That's helpful. I know my husband was, you know, recommended for surgery years ago and ended up uh, opting out of it and seeing a natural path and, you know, changed his diet and did different things. And he's, he's good. He does, you know, he does not need surgery. So, you know, here's another one, like, um, you know, people talk about medical cannabis. Um, ever since I started down this path of my, my, like I heard this disc when I was 18 years old and now it's just been that slow degenerative process because I don't want to 
I don't want to trade my kidneys or liver because I'm taking so much pain medication like acetaminophen and, and ibuprofen. So I literally have a chart like right on my nutrition tracking summary for the last four years, you can see every single day, any medication I've taken. And when I started doing just a CBD type type product, um, my medication use immediately was cut in half. And, but it took a little time. I mean, CBD is pretty benign. It's the, the non-pharmaco or, or psychogenic, you know, parts of, of the, the cannabis plant. Um, so I thought, well, maybe THC, maybe the actual active compound as people get medical cannabis cards and so forth, you know, you guys in Canada, everything is, is permissible. So yeah. I started doing that and my medic in my other medication, Tylenol, Advil, hydrocodone, like Oxycontin, all that kind of stuff. Like that came down another 50% just because now if I can stay ahead of it with that endocannabinoid system in my body, that's, that's part of this pain mediation because pain is first transmitted electrically by a nerve. Like, like I just got this huge blood blister over the weekend. Like I smashed my hands into a pair of pliers and this blood blister was this high and, you know, just massive, massive, massive pain. So that's a nervous system response. But what, my brain interprets that as pain is because of something called substance P in the cerebral spinal fluid. And, and again, that electrochemical signal is mediated from the, our peripheral body to our brain where our brain says, oh, that's pain. Let's make sure this person feels awful. Well, that can be mediated by other things than prescription pain meds. And so again, like this whole THC, CBD, endocannabinoid system, that was unbelievable for me. I, I never would have imagined I could reduce pain that much just by, you know, consistent low dose use of, of CBD and stuff like that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That's something to recommend. So, yeah, a lot, lot of things to try. And when somebody's in that much pain or chronic pain, I mean, just try it all. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta get out a list and check the, all the boxes and make sure you're doing everything you can to, uh, to, to have a better quality of life. I, yeah, I agree. Like keeping up, like some, whatever they're capable of with stretching and strengthening or, you know, doing what they can to create that blood flow. That's absolutely important. Thank Good you. Stuff. You are welcome. Thanks for being here, Roseanne. Any, any other questions? Yeah, Joe, I have one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, I've been doing some strength training. I've been working out at my own level for a long time. I'm certainly not going to lift 500 pounds, but now with osteoporosis, um, it's a mild case. Um, I'm doing strength training. I'm not doing any of the drugs because they terrify me. I'm you know, doing the right vitamins and diet and all that. But what would you say about, I've been told you know, not to curl my spine. So I try to do hip hinges and um, any advice? I've, I've never had a fracture of any kind. I'm hoping it stays that way, but any advice for, for spinal stability with osteoporosis? Yeah, uh, two or three things. So our medical director is about your frame size. Um, she's, you know, you know let, let's say she's five, five or five, six. There's actually a picture of her on my post yesterday standing next to me and, and Corey. Oh, yeah. I saw um, but she is a world record holding power lifter. Like she has a half a dozen recent, like in her 50s, world records in the squat and deadlift. And yet she also has osteoporosis. So the fact that she's strong and doing resistance training is only slowing down what is already genetically a problem for her. 
And mm -hmm. particularly because like you, she has a very light frame. So her normal interaction against just the force of gravity and normal daily movements, it's just, it's just, it doesn't yank on the bones, you know, through Wolf's law of physics principle. It doesn't, it doesn't create the need for as much calcium deposition as it would somebody who's bigger and stronger or heavier. And so, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck just knowing like I'm doing everything I can. I'm resistance training, I'm stretching, I'm strengthening, I'm doing all of this, but then also make sure that you're not losing lean body mass. So making sure you're getting at, at least, you know, a, a tick above the RDA of protein, um, you know, in, in making sure, of course, you're taking your vitamin D and your calcium and magnesium and all that. But it, it honestly is just that that consistency, you know, keep, keep exercising until you're 80, 90, 100, 120, and hopefully you never have a, a fracture, but uh, you may always show that your bone density is just a little bit less than the, the average. Right. And I understand too, that bone density doesn't mean bone strength either. Mm -hmm. you know, the DEXA scan doesn't show bone strength. It just shows a density. And there's a lot of problems with DEXA scans. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm a little skeptical, but I do want to take care of myself and yeah, you know, we always think of those things as we were talking about the other day on the phone, you know, as, you know, getting, you know, information to elderly people. And you, you mentioned like, you know, drugs and things, you know, tripping hazards, like we all have to be super careful because the, the wrong injury at the wrong time is, is, is going to snag us. But at the same time, you're, you're doing everything I think you can do, Barbara. And so, yeah. And I think you've been approved to speak at the Maya conference too. I just need official confirmation, but okay. you know soon. So I think you'll be there. So. Well, if I'm not qualified, I will find somebody who is. So I, right. I, you I, are I, know, I know some people. Thanks. I got to run. I'll see you later, right. Joe. Thank Thanks, you. Barbara. Bye. All right. Anybody, uh, anybody else have any final questions to wrap up? Oh, Sydney, you were going to jump in. Yes, please. Yes. Thanks. Um, so I do not at all have a background in physics or kinesiology and I've just got my CPT but I have a client who has EDS and um, we've been slowly working on her movements so for now just relaxing her muscles as much as possible because her osteopath has told me that her muscles are very tight mm -hmm. and I just want to make sure I'm getting on the right track with this, but main goal is she wants to stop falling down the stairs and she wants to stop slipping on uh, just uneven or like environmental terrain, like especially ice. Mm -hmm. So I want to get her working on like things, just like step ups and maybe step downs and trying to teach her how to engage her muscles mm -hmm. in these movements I know that uh, from like the basic research I've done that EDS affects the ligaments and it means they're flexible is this a possible route for her am I on the right track or should I just be saying I'm sorry I cannot help this you have to be super, super careful because like you said, whether mm -hmm. it's muscular hypertonicity or the ligaments mm -hmm. are just, you know, shortening and contracting and tightening, calcifying, you know, again, you could, you could be somebody as a personal trainer who's doing even just a manual stretch or instructing them, hey, stretch your Achilles tendon this way and you rupture mm -hmm. it and then, you know, you're, right. you're, you're in court and, and this person's mm -hmm. injured for life. So, um, 
you know, perhaps communicate with her physical therapist or orthopedic doctor, primary care doctor to make sure that they're, they're okay with what you're doing. Um, mm. That's just a good scope of practice note. But then somebody like that, it's, it's so different. I, I mean, it, it is a chronic long-term thing. You're never going to get her yeah. to th- the level of dorsiflexion or plantar flexion that you would have, you know, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you're looking yeah. at, as I mentioned to Barbara, like slowing down the process and maybe reversing it a little bit, but you have to be mm-hmm. so, so incremental. And then mm-hmm. any, any time that you do something too aggressively, you, you know that the muscle spindle and the Golgi tendon organ will respond by contracting something even tighter. So it's like, hey, let me, mm. let me stretch, stretch, stretch this. And then the nervous system says, no, no, no. And, and you're actually mm. making it worse because you're getting too right. aggressive. So you just okay. have to be super, super careful and incremental. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's almost like somebody, if, if, I, if I were in a hospital setting and somebody just came out of surgery, I'm not going to say, hey, let's go, let's go do a hundred jumping jacks. I'm going to say, Hey, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's get out of bed. Let's get you in a chair, sit up for mm-hmm. 10 minutes, get back in bed and I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. We'll see what we can do tomorrow. Maybe we can do that mm-hmm. twice. Maybe, you know, so it just has to be like super, super slow and gradual. Okay. Um, yeah. And let her kind of guide you through what she can tolerate. Yeah. She's been really good with communicating with me like, Oh, uh, cause I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to be doing this. Um, but we've been doing some like foam rolling just a little because her muscles do seem to react very slowly, but she'll be like, Oh, I can feel like my, my abductor is releasing. And I'm like, Oh, wow. That's amazing. You can feel that you, you can feel that in your inner thighs. That's great. Um, so I just want to very, we've been working on this for like a month, just slowly. And she lets me know, like, does this hurt in any way that you are not familiar with? Does this feel wrong in any way? Do you have any like ribs popped out? So I'm like, are your ribs intact or your vertebrae intact? So I never do anything unless she specifically lets me know, but just, you know, her, her goal is never to go to the gym. She doesn't want to lift heavy. She just wants to stop falling downstairs. Um, so I just want to make sure that my mission to work on straight up stability things, Mm -hmm. you know, from the feet to the knees, to the hips so that she's not, she, you know, she's only 34 and stairs are an issue. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure that I'm not going to do anything absolutely detrimental just by doing like step ups and then of, of course holding something not going to make her freestyle it and then practicing stepping down of holding holding her or having her holding something just to avoid any further issues or creating new problems yeah i'm, I'm glad you just mentioned the stability part i'm focused on that hypertonicity and relaxing muscle tissue but you're right. She still has to be strong to be able to do this. And mm-hmm. so, um, as I was saying earlier, that, that response that we get reciprocally, when we contract a muscle, our nervous system reciprocally inhibits the other side of the joint. So the act mm-hmm. of contracting muscle and relaxing it in a rep, you know, scheme, 10 reps or something mm-hmm. can actually relax the muscle in somebody who's hypertonic. So you're getting strengthening and relaxation, but you know, somebody who has mm-hmm. a, a nervous system or a contractile tissue issue like that, it's never going to be the, the normal response. And so yeah. sometimes even working on just 
platform stability stuff. Like you, you made me think of having her have, you know, step on a, one of those foam pads that are specifically to create mm-hmm. instability. So now mm-hmm. without a lot of work, her muscles just have to literally like fasciculate and contract just to keep her from falling. You know, that's a great falling mm-hmm. training thing. So, so like, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, most of us think in terms of like actual movement to strengthen, but sometimes you don't need the movement. You can just induce an unstable environment and the body has to work to stabilize, to, to hold them still. Right. So I could have her stand because she comes to my house. I don't have a lot of equipment, but I could have her stand on a couch cushion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And anything, practice bouncing right. on a couch. Cushion. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's so okay, unstable okay. that just, cause then when she's actually trying to go up or down stairs on a stable platform, now that all of those stabilizing mm-hmm. muscles around the ankle and the knee and the hips have had to work harder just to hold them there. There was a physical therapist decades ago. Um, I think the same was either, I think it was Gary, Gary Gray, something like that. He created this like the body blade and, and things like this, the unstable platforms to create like oscillating, you know, movements in the body. So then the stabilizing muscles have to work so hard just to keep you upright. So mm-hmm. that can be helpful for somebody who can't go through the full range of motion. Okay. All right. Actually, I really like that. So I think I'll employ that with her from today because she does want to start to progress a little bit more. So um, I'll definitely use the, uh, like, just standing on an unstable surface, controlled, but unstable surface for now. Yeah. If, if you if you message me, so I'll, I'll send you some links. I'll find you some things that you can use. Okay. Awesome.